Whatcha counting there, Miles? Oh, hey, Jay. Uh, Peter David issues. It occurred to me that for all that he's a thorny subject as a creator, he comes close to Claremont when it comes to total footprint in a single title. You think? I mean, divided up over different time periods. Wait, no, I thought David just did one really long run. Hey guys, what's up? Oh, hey, Tina. We were looking at creative footprints and trying to figure out how Peter David stacks up. Um, really well? Honestly, I'm not sure there's any other writer who's done as much on one title as he has. That can't be right. I mean, David did a lot, but nothing close to, say, Claremont. Yeah, I mean, Claremont was, what, 17 years? David's got maybe 12? Oh, that can't be right, Shay. I mean, by my math, it's 10 if you don't count the gaps. Well, I mean, years aside, 48 volumes is pretty damn impressive. I mean, even if some of them are in anthologies. What? Uh, there aren't anything close to 48 volumes of X-Factor. X-Factor? I was talking about The Incredible Hulk. Oh, you guys were talking about comics? What were you talking about? Star Trek novels. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 344 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to space. The final frontier. And welcome also to our guest expert, Tina Carlton. Thank you. It's good to be back after, um, 200 and something episodes. Yeah, the last time you were on the show was back in that first summer special we did, where we did the role-playing game and you were Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, I was Wolverine in uh, the role-playing game you did on episode 62. Now, it's possible that you've heard Tina's voice more recently on one of about 80 podcasts that she and her husband Max do, which are all pretty terrific, and most of which are focused on TV. We're going to link to those um, and, and sort of to the hub for those in the Visual Companion, but Tina, do you want to sum up sort of what's going on right now? Um, sure. We All our podcasts can be found at welcometotelevision.net. We do recap podcasts of various television shows. Currently, we're recapping The Old Charmed and Farscape, and we recently concluded doing WandaVision. Nice. And as I understand it, you also have a great deal of familiarity with something very relevant to this episode, that being Star Trek. Yeah, so uh, Star Trek is kind of my my... My first fandom, my, my, original, my original fandom. I got into Star Trek when I was 12 years old and flipping through channels, and I saw, I saw a woman fling a man into a bulkhead in the True Q episode where the guest character discovers that she is in fact a Q with uh, the godlike powers that that entails, and I was like, okay, I need to know everything about this. And relevant to this episode that y'all are filming today, this was this was way back in the uh, the distant time of the '90s, which meant we didn't have TiVo or DVDs. You had to buy the episodes like a single thirty-dollar cassette tape at a time at Suncoast Motion Picture Store. So a lot yes. of yes. <laughs> oh, I remember. I think I still have a chunk of those original series episodes on VHS. That's amazing. I am afraid I've gotten rid of all of mine. I wish I had saved them now, in retrospect. But 
most of the Star Trek universe, the easiest way I had to absorb it was through the novels. Speaking of ancient history in that specific era, I should say, um, so we've known Tina for about as long as we've known each other. And specifically, um, in terms of secret origins, uh, the origin of Tina and my friendship literally involves her showing up at school in, I think it was when you were in seventh grade and I was in sixth grade, on in, in Spirit Week on Future Career Day, wearing a Next Generation Star Trek uniform. That, that is correct. <laughs> and I was like, this yep. is the coolest person and I, I want to be friends with her. I am I am so glad that you mistakenly thought that wearing my Starfleet uniform to school was cool because uh, it resulted in our friendship. And here we are, decades later, doing a Star Trek X-Men crossover episode together. I, I'm very excited about this. So, Tina, like you, I, I got really into Star Trek um, in late elementary, early middle school. But for me, it was always the original series, because that was what my mom had been super, super into. And the series had debuted on her 11th birthday, I think, and so she'd really watched it from the start growing up. It was really formative for her. And when those those VHSs of single episodes started showing up again, she thought it was a great opportunity to, to sort of get me into it and show me some of what she'd watched growing up. So that was really what I saw a ton of um, when I was a kid. Miles, what about you? What, what What's your track angle? So my star of choice was always Wars rather than Trek. I recall early in our friendship, Jay, when we each got each other technical manuals for our respective star fandoms. Uh, yeah. I still have that Star Wars one, I think. Um so yeah, my Star Trek knowledge is limited. I've definitely seen a number of scattered episodes of Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, but not enough to get a feel for anything more than the general gist of each of them. Okay, I definitely recall sitting you down and making sure that you had at least seen the second, third, and fourth movies. Yes, and they were a great deal of fun. There was a whale. There were great accents. Uh, it was it was memorable. Spock died, and I was sad, even though I barely knew him. Uh, so, yeah, some experience, not nearly the depth that the two of you have, though. So, yes, we are indeed, as the astute listener may have guessed, or if anyone's looked at the copy before they listened to the episode, covering the three X-Men Star Trek crossovers from the 90s. There were two comics, there was a novel, and we are, wisely or not, going to go through all of them in this one single episode. You know, I, I feel like we can do this. We covered all of Secret Wars at once. Speaking of wisely or not, that's true, we did. We've made some choices. The point is that we have prepared for this moment in our lives. Some of us have been preparing for this very moment for decades. In fact. Uh, so what do you say? Should we just go through the three stories in roughly chronological order? Let's do this. So the first story we're looking at is, in fact, the first Star Trek X-Men crossover, creatively titled Star Treks with an X. This came out in 1996 and takes place nebulously pre-Onslaught, so exactly where we are and exactly right to delay our Onslaught coverage with. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by, oof, Mark Silvestri, Billy Tan, Anthony Wynn, and David Finch, inked by Bat, Detron, Billy Tan, Aaron Sode, and Joe Weems, with art assists by everyone and all their cousins, and colored by Tyson Wengler, Steve Furcho, Jonathan D. Smith, and Richard Eisenhoff, and lettered by Dennis Heisler. I gotta say, for possibly the issue we've covered with the most total artists, like seriously, listeners, the art assists, it's, it's everyone, I think I'm in there. It does a pretty good job, at the very least, making each side of the crossover seem pretty on-model. Like, the X-Men characters all look like they should be in a Marvel comic. The Star Trek characters all look like they have, in fact, come roughly off of the screen. Ooh, I disagree with you. I think the likeness skills among this art team vary wildly. 
And this this may be less evident to you because I know you haven't watched a ton of the original series, but to me, the difference was pretty stark. I always think it's hard to take a a person, a real person that we watch on the screen, you know, week after week and then translate that to a comic. I it's a problem I have with any tie in comic I read. It's it's always it's always uncanny valley time. The key to making something like this work, I think, is to stylize those likenesses in the same way consistently. And that really isn't happening here. Which is my main complaint. Like, I, I don't need Walter Koenig to look like Walter Koenig everywhere, but I do need him to look unlike Walter Koenig in consistent ways. <laughs> so, this is your mom's Star Trek. Um, this is NCC-1701 with none of those newfangled letters afterwards. Actually, it's probably your grandmother's Star Trek, chronologically, if you're roughly our age. Um, and specifically, your grandmas were probably the ones responsible for keeping it on the air for so long, so let's hear it for all of the stay-at-home moms of the late 60s. Um, who not only kept Star Trek running, but also invented slash fiction. Well done, well done. Yeah, Kirk Spock is the OG pairing. Um, there is actually still a Kirk Spock con in Seattle. I don't know if it's happened this year, but it used to be an annual thing that I have always wanted to go to and just like write about and interview people at, because it's the fact that it's been so persistent is so cool. In my head, this is a convention where half the people dress up as Kirk, half of them dress up as Spock, and then they all make out. And if I'm wrong, I don't want to hear about it. And it's not just Kirk Spock Con. Your your mom or grandma also invented the very concept of the sci-fi convention with Star Trek conventions. So, I mean, we owe everything to Star Trek moms, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Star Trek moms, this episode's for you. Unless it sucks, in which case, pick a different episode. You can have that one. So... Going to the story, we start out on the Star Trek side of the crossover, and we start out with the Enterprise on a mission near the quarantined planet Delta Vega. This is a significant location, and if you know the original series, you know why. Because this is the location of the second pilot of the series, which originally aired as the third episode. It's called Where No Man Has Gone Before. It starts with the Enterprise running into an anomaly, a big spatial rift made of pure psychic energy. They find the black box of a self-destructed starship inside, and... Then a couple members of the crew start to develop intense psychic powers, um, become telekinetic, and, and their humanity and empathy diminishes as they become more and more godlike. Primary among these is a guy named Gary Mitchell. He's the lieutenant commander of the Enterprise. He's Kirk's BFF, and Kirk eventually has to kill him with the help of Dr. Elizabeth Danner, who was similarly affected but managed to hold on to a bit more of her humanity. Danner died helping Kirk stop Mitchell. Um, everyone felt bad about it, and that's pretty much what happens in that episode. And I gotta say, as somebody who knew nothing about that episode, the comic does a pretty decent job of telling you what you need to know. Except for one thing, it pretty much eliminates Dr. Danner, which I'm gonna rant more about later, but um, I feel fairly strongly that she would have made way more sense in the Gary Mitchell role in this comic. So, the spatial rift from that episode is now back, and there's an unidentified alien ship inside in apparent distress, which promptly explodes. Should give you a feeling of deja vu again, going back to that, that self-destructing ship here. This ship did not self-destruct. This ship was destroyed by another ship that decloaks, and which those of you familiar with the X-Men will identify as a Shi'ar vessel. The Shi'ar promptly launch something at the ship, which turns out to be Gladiator, the Praetor of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. We, do, uh, we haven't seen the Shi'ar in a long time. Should we maybe do a little bit of, of brief backstory on them? 
Absolutely. Pretty straightforward. They're essentially the Roman Empire, if they were in space, led by bird people and consisting of a bunch of different aliens, including this purplish-blue guy with a mohawk. They're generally not great. Some are better, some are worse. Empress Lalandra, she's pretty cool. She's Professor Xavier's ex-girlfriend. We like her okay. Deathbird is her sister, who has a much better name, but is much more evil. And uh, she's a little bit more relevant to this story. Now, Gladiator is there to claim Delta Vega on behalf of the Shi'ar Empire. And in what I think might be the best moment of this comic, he straight up punches the Enterprise. I love Kirk's line. Did he just punch my ship? It's so great. Uh, Mr. Scott heads back to engineering to assess the damage where he is being watched from the shadows by none other than Wolverine, uh, who is scouting around while the rest of the team hides in a closet. So who have who, we got here running around the Enterprise? So for this iteration, it's Cyclops, Jane, Bishop, Beast, Storm, and Gambit. Do we have a sense of which beast this is? Because this is this takes place around the time that 616 Hank McCoy is replaced by Dark Beast, right? Yeah, I mean, based on the costume Bishop is wearing, I think it would have to be after the replacement took place. And I think Beast wasn't found until late. Yeah, I think this is actually Dark Beast. I think this is Dark Beast continuing to regret all of his decisions in impersonating regular Beast. Oh, that's so sad, because I feel like of all the characters, Hank McCoy is by far and away the one who'd be most into it being in a Star Trek crossover. I know, right? Although, that does raise a question. I mean, we know that in the comics, the X-Men do watch Star Trek, but they don't mention that here. They're surprised to meet everyone. How do we handle that? Well, is this confirmed that this is 616 X-Men? Perhaps this is X-Men from a likewise slightly off universe. Maybe this is 617 X-Men. Oh, so like a Marvel Universe where the only difference between it and 616 is that Star Trek is not a television show? And there's no Dark Beast. Ah. And the X-Men ended up crossing over with Star Trek. It's sort of like the Teen Titans crossover doesn't technically conflict with any of 616, but it's still an alternate set of X-Men. Well, that brings up another question. What's the multiversal numerical designation of the Star Trek universe? I mean... If a Marvel universe is crossing over with it, it has to have one, but I googled and there isn't one. So I, I feel like this offends my sensibilities. If we're going to pick one, I mean, I'm not a Star Trek fan, but I feel like Earth 1701 would be kind of appropriate. Solid. That works. Nice. Honestly, <laughs> I'm offended that there's not a Star Trek designation. I mean, isn't there a designation for the universe where everyone has a beard? There is. There is. That would be Earth 200-500. But, nice. but Star Trek doesn't get one? I'm offended. As a Trekkie, I'm offended. Fair. Like, if you go to the Marvel database, the Marvel fandom site, and you click on one of the Star Trek characters from one of these issues, it just takes you to Memory Alpha, which is the Star Trek wiki. Wait, wait, wait a minute, y'all. Do we know for sure that this isn't the universe where the Avengers all have beards? You just blew my mind. Holy crap. I mean, we don't see any Avengers, so... Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is that universe. But we digress. So the X-Men have followed the, the, the psychic space-time rift from their universe. And in fact, they think they know what caused it. And they think it's their responsibility. We're going to get back to that shortly. But first, it's time to split up the team. Gambit is critically injured. So Storm and Beast take him to Med Bay, setting up the inevitable Dr. McCoy gag. Um, and, and also leading to my favorite thing about this entire comic... Which is, 
that I, it, if you know the original series, this is funny. If you don't, it's probably not. But they very clearly weren't allowed to use the word hell, which is like every third word that Dr. McCoy says in the original series. And he just keeps on saying heck in this. And, and somehow like that was the thing that just stuck with me. <laughs> Star Trek is the good place. It physically prevents you from swearing. <laughs> yeah, but he does swear in Star Trek, which means that the X-Men are the good place. Oh, right. Of course. Oh, man. That can't be right. This raises so many questions. But that scene, though, I do love it. Like, Nurse Chapel comes in and she yells, Dr. McCoy! And, like, Bones and Beast just turn around and say what? And this is... I, I remember clipping that panel well before I'd actually read through this story and just showing it to, like, everyone I could find. It's such a good gag. When I mentioned on Twitter that we were going to be covering this, like, that was the one thing people brought up. It's really good! So everyone else heads off to steal a shuttlecraft, but Spock um, is, of course, a Vulcan, so he's, he has telepathy, and he intercepts Gene's telepathic scan and heads them off. Um, I enjoy that a running joke across multiple of the Star Trek crossovers is how easily various other characters are able to take down Wolverine. Spock, of course, takes him out immediately with a Vulcan nerve pinch. Although I appreciate that he just comes up like a weeble like 0.5 seconds later with his claws in Spock's face because his healing factor is so fast. He's also very bottom heavy. He, he just bounces right back up. Wolverines wobble, but they don't fall down. Mm-hmm. Baby got adamantium back. Meanwhile, the respective Shi'ar and Federation science folk have determined that the source of the psionic rift is in fact the Marvel Universe, and also there's someone alive on the planet below who seems to be controlling the rift, but also the rift itself might be sentient. They're a little bit wobbly on that. And the X-Men hear this and immediately jump to the conclusion that it must be Proteus. To their credit, they're right. Yeah, but there's no reason they should be. I mean, there's a psychic entity that can manipulate reality, and I recognize that as more than one character, but Proteus is certainly the first one my brain goes to as an X-Men reader. Really? Because I would have gone right to Jamie Braddock. Jamie Braddock is fun, but more people read the Claremont run of X-Men than read Captain Britain or Excalibur. Now, we covered both of the Proteus stories. There are a grand total of two. Um, but, at this point, there are more uh, later. Right, at this point. But, um... It's been, I think, literal years since we've talked about this guy. Miles, do you want to do the honors? Absolutely. So Proteus is the son of Moira McTaggart and her jerk ex-husband. Proteus, unfortunately, had a, one of those bad mutant powers that he couldn't control. Essentially, he was constantly decaying, and so he had to psychically jump into different people's bodies, which would then zombify very quickly. But while he was doing this, he could manipulate reality, which, given his traumatic upbringing, generally didn't go very well and involved a lot of people dying. Colossus killed him, thus starting the decades-long decline into continual moping that we saw with Colossus. And Proteus came back, and I crossover called, I believe, Kings of Pain. He's going to come back again and again and again, gradually. He's a fun, if tragic, villain. They just kill him over and over and over probably part of why he's so bitter. Fair enough. So the X-Men know that guy on their side. What they don't know is who he's connected with on Delta Vega. So it's Kirk's turn to provide some background on Gary Mitchell. And the character he has this conversation with is, is Jean Grey, who of course would be very understanding when you tell someone, oh yeah, they developed godlike powers, so we had to put him down. 
been there, done that. I think this is actually really smart. Like, it's not just a matter of having the X-Men use their cool powers with the Star Trek people using their cool tech. Like, picking the right characters who would have their own separate takes that they could talk about, or specifically in this case, not talk about, I think makes it feel a lot more organic. Fair, and it does work well to build up the the parallels with Proteus, although that that feels a little bit forced. So they head down to Delta Vega, which now sports a Scottish village, so it looks like it is definitely Proteus, and in fact he has merged with Gary Mitchell. And he explains exactly what's going on in a very long villain monologue. In our original incarnation as Proteus, I left Earth in search of a means to recorporate myself. I needed a vessel in which to pour my psionic essence, a human body which would not burn out over time like my previous hosts. Do you think he still has the Scottish accent when he's Gary Mitchell or not? Uh, I'm going to say no, because... <laughs> Fair enough. I'm just, like, weirdly, really super ent- entertained by the idea of Gary Mitchell having a Scottish accent. Mostly, I just still think it's really funny that people keep on yelling Gary in the episode. Gary! It's, Gary. it's, the, it's the least um, dramatic name to yell. As we continue our podcast trend of offending, like, every single individual name in the world... It's not a bad name. It's just a bad name for a god. It's just not dramatic. Gary. Sorry, assorted Garys. Anyway, we'll give the mic back to uh, Garius. In my search, I was attracted to the psionic rift, which turned out to be a doorway between our reality and one other. Once here, I encountered the echo of the long-dead Gary Mitchell. Here on Delta Vega, I discovered a form which was capable of holding my psionic energy. And more. By bonding Proteus and Mitchell, we discovered we have the power to control the rift, and with it, all of reality. So I think this works pretty well with Proteus. I think this is consistent with his character. But uh, Jay and Tina, what do the two of you think about Gary Mitchell? I know nothing about the character. Does this sort of jive with what we've seen of him in the past? It totally jives with the version of him that we see at the end of Where No Man Has Gone Before. However... That version of him is also really definitively dead. He is buried in a grave he dug for Kirk, under a shit ton of rubble, and Dr. Denner just sort of collapses a little bit and is assumed to be dead. It would have made so much more sense for it to be her. Yeah. Yeah. This is just a long run of women getting kind of left behind. I... I... I couldn't help but think of Marla McGivers, who is from the Space Seed episode of original series, who just is killed off screen between Space Seed and Wrath of Khan. I want Marla McGivers and Elizabeth Denner to, like, get to go off together and have their own AU in the 618 off aside from this one. I like this plan. Yeah, I'm here for this. Well, so Garius has given us his plot, so wait a minute, we haven't talked much about why the Marvel characters are here in the first place, but we find out who some of the rest of them are right here. Right, so they followed Deathbird in, and uh, Deathbird has, has hooked up with Garius, and as, as Deathbird is, is well known for her prudence and good judgment, she is not, she has offered Garius a starship in exchange for Delta Vega. What would a god need with a starship? That That's a reference, right? I feel yes. like that was a reference. Okay, yes. reference, yes. Star Trek V. It's okay not to watch it. That's really the only line you need to know. 
think I did watch it, but I don't remember anything about it, apparently. But no, I love Deathbird here. I love that every time she sort of manipulates a powerful villain for her own benefit, she has this very distinctive pose she does where she sort of turns sideways and leans on this always male character's shoulder and puts one of her legs up in front of them. Like, you'd think that at this point people in the Marvel Universe would know, like, oh, she's doing that pose. Shit, she's betraying me and manipulating me, isn't she? That's because everything Deathbird knows about diplomacy came from the covers of Edgar Rice Burroughs' novels. I mean, I guess it's pretty effective. I can't blame her. Although now it occurs to me, she did that to Vulcan when he became Emperor of the Shi'ar. What would the Star Trek Vulcans think of Emperor Vulcan? They would judge the shit out of him. Fair. It's a shame she and Kirk aren't on the same side here, because he also got everything he knows about diplomacy from Edgar Rice Burroughs' novels. Oh shit, so if they hooked up, how would that go? Would his tendency to have his lovers die win, or would her tendency to have her lovers die win? I feel like she would probably figure out that he's a huge nerd masquerading as a cool guy and dump him. (laughs) That's way sadder than one of them dying, honestly. He is, though. Like, everyone thinks Kirk's the cowboy, but, I mean, literally, in Where No Man has gone before mitchell's like oh yeah he's basically a stack of books with legs at starfleet academy we know he collects antiques i didn't know that that's adorable we all know who the sexy one on the enterprise is uhura spock oh that too see i I have trouble with spock because leonard Nimoy reminds me a lot of my grandfather okay that's fair you know like i get the appeal but it just feels weird to go there myself Fair. More than fair. Anyway, after some brief telepathic attempts at diplomacy, everyone attacks everyone else. The Enterprise uses Bishop to channel phaser power and destroy the rift, while everyone else uses their powers all at the same time to blow up Garius kind of sinister style. I mean, they do kind of convince him that what he's doing isn't okay, and so he seems to invite them to all zap their powers at him. And relieved to have landed in a nice future for once, or at least a relatively nice future, the X-Men head back home, and the Enterprise continues its five-year mission. Uh, so, as an X-Men fan, I thought this was kind of fun if inessential. Uh, again, you two know Star Trek way better. What did you think? Good representation of the original series? Not good? So, I feel like this is a good representation of a lot of mid-tier Star Trek original series episodes. Like... If you're going to talk about the Star Trek episodes that kind of hit the high heights, uh, this isn't it. But if you're talking about what the majority of Star Trek is, yeah, this this kind of this kind of works. It's firmly like Squire of Gothos level. Sort of a Gary of the Week episode. Yeah, yeah. One thing I will give Scott Lobdell is that he is a very, very good parrot. And that sounds really backhanded, but what I mean is he's incredibly good at echoing the voices of other characters, either as they're written or spoken. And in this, the Star Trek characters really feel like the Star Trek characters. Like, it's very, very easy to hear the dialogue. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So that wraps it up for the original series, and brings us to the second Star Trek X-Men crossover, and The Next Generation. That being Star Trek The Next Generation slash X-Men Second Contact. Written by Dan Abnett and Ian Edgington, penciled by Carrie Nord, inked by Scott Koblish, our favorite real-world Scott, colored by John Callis, and lettered by Chris Eliopoulos. 
So, as you might uh, gather from the title, this is in fact a direct sequel in addition to the first X-Men Star Trek crossover to Star Trek First Contact, which was the second Next Generation movie. Also the second best Star Trek movie about time travel. It's a pretty good movie, and... Jay, as I recall, this was our second-ish date back when we were very young, wasn't it? Yeah, it was awkward as hell because you kept on trying to make out and I kept on dodging so I could pay attention to the movie. I mean, I'm more of a Star Wars than a Star Trek fan, so I had my priorities. Also, we were like 14. Oh, for sure. Like, everything was super awkward anyway because, you know, 14-year-olds. <laughs> yup. Uh, anyway, this was also the directorial debut of Jonathan Frakes, that's the guy that plays Riker. Fun fact, he went on to direct a ton of other stuff, but the most notable among his credits is that one episode of Voyager where Janeway and Paris turn into salamanders and fuck. And abandon their children. Oh yeah, they do. They're really bad parents. Oh, I mean, they're lizards. I don't know, are lizards good parents? I don't know much about lizards. Well, salamanders, they're amphibians. Yeah, they actually made an action figure out of that particular episode, if, uh... Someone needs to track it down for you to add to your terrifying action figure collection. Well, I, I gave away my upsetting Senator Kelly, so I'm going to need to find a new one of him to, to be friends with it. But it can hang out with my Walter Peck and my um, my um, Paper Jam Cyclops. Huh. What a world in which we live. Well, anyway, first contact. So... The Federation's at war with the Borg. Uh, the Borg, if anyone's not familiar, are sort of cyborg people. They have a hive mind collective intelligence. Once they get Borgified, they're very bad. Their spaceship is a big cube, which I guess works if you're in space, because you don't have to worry about being aerodynamic. Don't they have spheres sometimes, too? They have they have a sphere in first contact. It's not normal, though. That was a special... It was, it was special for the movie. Oh, wow. Okay, so they're normally a one platonic solid species. Yes. Hey, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Anyway, in Marvel, I don't know, who would we sort of compare them to? Oh, maybe somewhere between the Phalanx and the Brood? That seems about right. I'd say probably closer to the Phalanx. The Phalanx certainly reference the Borg a lot. They even mention that resistance is futile sometimes. So Picard has his own history with the Borg. They Borgified him once. He's pretty pissed about that. And there's very much an Ahab Moby Dick thing going on between him and the Borg. Uh, Ahab from the famous book, not from X-Men. Miles, Star Trek loves all kinds of dick. Fair enough. Especially at those conventions. So the Enterprise blows up the Borg cube, but the Borg cube gets its fancy prototype round ship to Earth, and so when the Enterprise shows up, it has been taken over by the Borg for a long time, because the Borg went back in time and messed up history. So anyway, the Enterprise goes back in time also, and they have to make it so Earth's first contact with an alien species, the Vulcans, actually does happen. And as I recall, it's a pretty good movie. So this picks up right after that movie, like right after that movie, as the Enterprise is trying to make its way back to their timeline. The Enterprise E, specifically, because the Enterprise D got blown up like, I don't know, sometime before. In a previous movie, right? I'm not sure if they're allowed to actually blow up the ships during the TV series. No, it, it blew up in the movies. They, it, it made it through the series. Well done, Enterprise. Had a good run. So anyway, we have our Next Generation crew, uh, Picard, Riker, Data, Troy, Crusher, Jordi LaForge, and Worf, who's here on loan from Deep Space Nine. 
As far as the X-Men, we have kind of a weird team. We have three actual X-Men, Storm, Wolverine, and Archangel, after he got his feathered wings back, that comes up a number of times later. But then we also have Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus from Excalibur, and Banshee from Generation X. So it's kind of a reunion of a classic-ish version of the team from around the Bronze Age, which really just reminds me, yeah, God, a lot of the X-Men were in Excalibur at this point. It's a weird lineup. It's kind of fun, though, and it mostly works. Uh, The visuals also mostly work. Carrie Nord, uh, I know him from Conan, uh, I think, but he does really nice... You know he drew the X-Men Alpha Flight series you covered? Oh, well, uh, that too. Anyway, he's a great artist, and having only one artist for this issue really helps compared to the last one we talked about. Yeah. The writing also is pretty good. Like, it feels like a Marvel comic, the X-Men sound like the X-Men, but the Star Trek narration, which is in those cool little Star Trek computer screen narration boxes, it's it's very neat, uh, make it feel like a good balance between the two. I think it strikes that balance super well. What doesn't go well is the Enterprise's time travel after the last movie, because they end up in 1997. Not the era of the Federation, but the era of pouches. But pointedly, post-onslaught. Uh, yes, post-onslaught, so no Professor X around here. And so they figure, well, crap, we need some fancy technology to fix our ship and enable it to travel through time to the right time. But there's only fancy enough technology in a couple places. It's Shi'ar technology. And I don't know, do you guys think that this is just referring to when the Federation met the Shi'ar in the last X-Men crossover? There's no way they've had further contact with them. That's not necessarily the case. So, this is kind of a stretch, but when I thought of this, it made me think of the Kazinti, who are the cat-like alien creatures from Larry Niven's Man Kazin series, but then when he wrote an episode for Star Trek the Animated Series, he just adapted one of his stories without changing anything and brought the Kazinti into the Star Trek universe. So it's entirely possible that at some point the Shi'ar were also brought into the Star Trek universe. I mean, not in any way we've seen, but, you know, off off screen. There's a lot that happens out in space. I'm perfectly willing to accept this explanation. I feel like they'd be structurally redundant to the Romulans, though. I mean, they have better hair. It's made of feathers. I, I like the Romulan bisexual bob. Likewise, I like the Romulans, but I, I feel like they're they're politically very, very close to the Shi'ar already. And they, they play a role similar to the one filled by the Shi'ar in the X-Men universe, if, if less colorfully. That's definitely true, but there are alien... I, I think there are alien redundancies in Star Trek, so... The Shi'ar could be like backup, backup, backup Romulans. There's also, you know, the, the sort of Romulan Klingon switch where, where you see them taking it taking on opposing roles in Next Generation from the ones that they have in original series. Well, anyway, uh, the Shi'ar technology is in two places. One of those places is in the hands of the Thunderbolts at the Fantastic Four's Baxter building. That matters for one page and then is never mentioned again, which is super weird. The other Shi'ar tech is, of course, in the X-Mansion. So, some Star Trek folks infiltrate the X-Mansion, they're caught, there's a misunderstanding-based fight, because Wolverine's a hothead, and it's actually Shadowcat who quiets everybody down, as the X-Men realize, wait, we we know these folks, they're from the Enterprise, but, like, 
a different generation, possibly the next generation. They would actually be like four generations later. That, that just, I, that, sorry, this, this bothers me more than it should. <laughs> well, anyway, it's not great because space-time is now unstable thanks to this accidental dimensional shift. And I love this Wolverine exchange that begins their glorious bromance slash romance. <clears throat> Parallel dimensions. I despise them. They are no end of trouble. Tell me about it, bub. Suddenly, it's Kang the Conqueror. You know, from that show everybody just watched. Uh, he says, yes, time is fucked, and so the Star Trek guys and X-Men guys need to fix these two big anomalies so time itself does not collapse. Okay, while he shows up on Loki and a lot of people have seen that, I don't think we've really seen much of Kang the Conqueror in the material we've covered on the podcast. What's his deal? I mean, Jay, if, if we answered that question, this episode would be about 14 hours long. He's a time traveler. He's got a million different forms. It's very complicated. He's a time traveler specifically because he wants to conquer all of reality at all of its stages. Go big or go home, I guess. We did actually discuss Kang the Conqueror at length in one of the Secret Convergence on Infinite Podcasts episodes years and years and years ago. I'll stick a link to that in the visual companion to this one. So, the good guys figure, well, Kang may be lying, but if he's telling the truth, then we should definitely help him. So, Team 1 goes to Days of Future Past in the year 2013. Uh, I really enjoy Picard's first encounter with Sentinels as he zaps one of their heads off. No one vivisects my crew members. You tell him, Jean-Luc. So the anomaly here is that Tasha Yar, a character from Next Gen who died, is here instead of Rachel Summers and is the one sending Kate Pride's consciousness back in time so that Senator Kelly isn't assassinated. The other anomaly that Team 2 goes to is the last battle of the Federation against the Borg in the year 2367. The anomaly here is that the Borg actually boards a Federation ship because they detect mutants and want to see what's up, and also that Thunderbird, John Proudstar, the X-Man who died at the end of their first all-new-all-different mission, is a crew member. But here's the thing. Turns out the anomalies, yeah, those are actually the time stream's attempt to repair itself. So if the time stream does get, quote, fixed, Kang can just take over the smoking crater that is time itself. At this point, Wesley Crusher shows up, and he shows up with someone named the Traveler. Who's the Traveler? What is this dude's deal? He gets no context in the comic. So the Traveler is kind of Hugh-like in that he exists kind of outside of space and time and reality. And he comes to interact with our reality, to experience our reality. And he's specifically scouting Wesley Crusher from an early age. He shows up in several episodes at important points in Wesley's life uh, when he's like kind of developing his massive brain. And then when Wesley realizes that maybe Starfleet isn't for him, the Traveler shows up and offers him an apprenticeship, and then the two of them go off to be gods together. Huh. So, like, not exactly a Doctor Companion thing, because Wesley gets to be all fancy and all-powerful, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wesley is not a companion. He's, he's, he's an intern. It's the Doctor and the intern. So it sounds like by the next generation, Starfleet has revised its opinions on, on you know, human ascendancy to godhood. Well, I mean, they didn't really get an option here. Plus, Wesley had already been involved in that one kid's death, so I'm sure they were happy to get rid of him. So Wesley and the Traveler 
are here to let everybody know that, yeah, this is Kang just trying to take over the time stream, and they really need to let time proceed as it is attempting to proceed. And thus, Wesley and the X-Men's own young genius, Kitty Pride, zap into those anomalous time spaces to tell the good guys to chill the hell out. So the Borg battle team has to let a Federation version of Thunderbird die like he did in their timeline so that he can save Benjamin Sisko, who will of course go on to lead Deep Space Nine. This is actually genuinely poignant. Like, Storm is one of the people on this mission, and she was one of the people that saw Thunderbird die back in the 70s, and her response to this is written very well, I think. And Team Days of Future Past has to have Deanna Troy psychically help the dying Tasha Yar send Kate back because in this timeline Tasha Yar also has psychic powers. Also genuinely poignant, because here's young Kitty Pride seeing this formative thing that her older self will do in a dark future that she's only ever heard about. Like, I'm kind of impressed with this comic's ability to take essentially, hey, do you remember this reference scenes and make them work? But this is ultimately just a prequel. The Enterprise blows up Kang's ship and everyone parts ways, which leads us straight into the one and only Star Trek The Next Generation slash X-Men novel. I was initially a little bitter that this comic was just part one of a novel that I had to read, and then I read the novel, and, well, well, I'm excited to talk about it. Tina, would you do the honors? Absolutely. So in the Next Gen comic, there's some back matter from editor Tim Tui talking about how the evolution of the comic came to be, and then he says, how are we going to write this novel? Michael Jan Friedman, Nuff said. And since that might not be a name familiar to everybody, I thought maybe that wasn't Enough said, and I would mention who Michael Jan Friedman is. He started writing Star Trek novels. He was approached by his agent to write Star Trek novels back in 1986. His first one was an original series novel, Double Double, that came out in 1989. And I mean this in the best possible way. He's kind of like a really great session writer. If you go down the list of Star Trek novels he's written, and there's a lot of them, he gets brought in for concept novels that other people have pitched that they couldn't write for whatever reason, or that, or, or novelizations of episodes. He's the guy that you know you can call on, and he's going to do a great job with whatever story you need to have written to fit into the continuity, which is exactly what this novel is. And when he pitches his own stories, they tend to be super continuity porn heavy. I was counting the number of episodes that he references in this book, and then I just stopped when I got to like 20. There's so many. One of the novels that he wrote, he had to really fight to get them at Paramount to let him do because he wanted to use Carol Marcus and David, who, for those of you who don't know, are, are Kirk's lover and son. And they didn't want him to bring in continuity. I actually got a quote from Michael Jan Friedman. He said, they would have preferred that we did our own independent stories in space. You know, open the door, go in, shut the door, go out. And it has nothing to do with the continuity. But more and more, the only things that were satisfying to me were the things that kind of cut into the continuity. And that's exactly the guy you needed for this novel. So lucky they had him in their stable. I respect the hell out of that. Continuity is so much fun. Yeah, and this is someone who clearly 
Well, clearly knows his way very, very well around Star Trek. There's much, much less in the way of continuity reference on the X-Men side of things. Yeah, if you look at his bibliography, you'll see Star Trek novel after Star Trek novel and, like, a lot of DC comics, strangely. No, no, uh, no X-Men other than this and one other novel. Although, weird fact, I don't know if it's a fun fact, he did write the novelization for the Batman and Robin movie. Oh, man, like the George Clooney one. Yeah. Oh, shit, I, I, I kind of want to read that. I know, right? Me too. I might have to try to track that down. We might have to, like, read it aloud in sexy voices. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, in this novel, we start off on the titular planet X, planet Zaldia, which is X-H-A-L-D-I-A, it's one of the things I always really loved about the Star Trek novels is that you had a chance to go like really in depth on other planets that you didn't get on the TV show. And we're introduced to Arid Sovar, a young man who's about to go on his adulthood journey. And as he is trekking through the wilderness, he is hit with his mutant power. He all of a sudden gains a mutant power. And we find out that 22-year-olds, specifically 22-year-olds, all over Zaldia are starting to manifest some sort of power. There are muted, sorry, transformed. They're called the transformed. There are transformed all over the planet. And they are all rounded up and imprisoned, which is not great. And then you have the mutant rabble rouser, the transformed rabble rouser, Rahatan making some valid points. He kind of is, like, just straight up uh, Zaldian Magneto, right? Yes, 100%. I mean, other than his power is, like, earth-shaking. But, yeah. He talks about how they they shouldn't be confined and imprisoned, which is absolutely true. And then he breaks them out of prison and decides that he should be their leader, which is a lot less true. And he kills one of the mutants who opposes him, which is very bad. That's what you have to do when you have superpowered people making valid points. You have to have them be evil so that, you know, you don't question things too much. We see it in the MCU time and again. You, the villain gets too sympathetic, have them randomly murder someone for no good reason. Especially one of their allies. Yes. So the Transformed take over a city in Zaldia called Verdine, and I actually pulled out a quote from the novel here that just really says out loud the point of the novel. The Chancellor nodded. Do whatever you have to do, and keep in mind we are no longer dealing with a group of innocents. They have become capable of violence, even if it is we who are responsible for that change in them. And they must be treated accordingly. Definitely puts the X in the planet. <laughs> yes. Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, uh... Michael Jan Friedman places us in time really nicely by telling us these are dangerous times with the Dominion and ever-present threat, so we know we're right in the middle of the Dominion War from Deep Space Nine. And we get to see what it was that the mutants were looking at in shock when they landed at the end of the comic. A cargo bay! Not a cargo bay. A cargo bay! My god. Full of boxes. Yeah, it's full of boxes. Boxes that contain time hooks. 
Did I just miss this in the comic? In the book, they keep referring to the device that let them travel through time as a time hook, but they were called chrono compasses in the comic, right? Yes. Okay, just checking. Maybe it's like a Kleenex versus tissues kind of thing, like one's the brand name, one's the generic. Possibly. Although I suspect it's more like a... The plot was hammered out and given to two people to write because they had four months to get it done, and uh, one of them changed it without telling the other. So, in the cargo bay, which is on Starbase 88, the mutants meet up with a security officer, and they have another misunderstanding fight. So, there was something I found really disturbing in this scene, um, which had nothing to do with the fight, but it was that upon, like, after learning that they're on a starbase, Kitty phases through the walls and floor. Oh my god! Like, there are probably electronic life support systems in those. And we know from later in the novel that she shorts things out when she phases through them. She messes up the holodeck when she phases through the wall. Oh no. Yeah, she does, oh, she no. does a lot of irresponsible phasing through shit just because it's convenient in this book. See, I thought you were going to say that you were worried about her phasing possibly into space, but no, that's much worse. No, she does fine in space. Oh, okay. Well, I guess if you can control atoms. And especially as long as she's in a nice, cozy, giant bullet. But we won't get to that part until way later in the podcast. So over on the Enterprise-E, there is... The ship is heading off to a strategy meeting with the Klingons because we're in the middle of the Dominion War, and Worf is joining, even though it should really be Jedzia, but I won't get into that. And he's sad that nobody is there to greet him, but it's just because there's a surprise party for him in the observation lounge. It is adorable. Like, I'm not going to say this book gets everything right, but it is just so, so charming in certain scenes, and this is one of them, at least for this non-Star Trek familiar person. I just rewatched Gallivant with my parents, and all I could picture in this scene was Gareth's surprise party where he kills half the court. Oh no. Yeah, that sounds about right. But not in the novels. In the novels, Worf is always a lot more, like, friendly than he is portrayed on the show, I feel. Picard gets a call from Starbase 88 because the mutants dropped his name to get out of trouble, and... They want him to come pick them up because they are disorderly and causing trouble, so they need their space dad to come pick them up. When they get there, Wolverine is in the brig because he couldn't even go like two days without starting a bar fight. And Archangel is just swooping everywhere through the hallways, which I, I, I you know, I really respect Michael Jan Friedman in general, but I have this sense that he didn't really consider Archangel's wingspan relative to most starbase and starship hallways when he was writing this book. Yeah, Archangel is angry in the whole book about how little room he has to maneuver, but he seems to be maneuvering a lot more than he actually could in those hallways. Yeah, he's just flying through the hallways buzzing people to be just just to be an asshole through this entire section. It's it's actually really funny. <laughs> And I'm actually really excited to talk about Archangel's role in this book, because I think it's one of the most interesting X things in the book. But that'll probably make a little more sense to talk about once we've established kind of what's going on here. Sure. So after getting Wolverine out of the brig, the rest of the X-Men are coming over to the Enterprise. And uh, while we're waiting for them to beam over, walking HR violation Riker 
goes over to flirt with the transport tech. And I mention that only because he talks about how the X-Men have such amazing powers. And she says, it's hard to believe a man can fly, which I have to think is a joking reference to the Superman movie and its tagline of you'll believe a man can fly. I have to believe Michael Jan Friedman threw that in as kind of a stealth DC reference in this X-Men crossover. The Federation has encountered a lot, and I find it kind of bizarre throughout this, the X-Men are what beggar belief. Like, Horda, fine, whatever, we're cool. Wings, holy shit. Yeah, I made a little note in my book when I was reading it, when the security officer first comes across the X-Men and is like, they are unlike any aliens I've ever seen, and I wrote in the margin, oh... Look at Mr. I've seen every type of alien over here. <laughs> so now that the X-Men are on board the Enterprise, we're going to start pairing them off so that we can do, like, fun pairings. First, we get Storm and Picard going into Picard's ready room to just, like, totally flirt. She's all like, what sort of cooperation did you have in mind? And Picard, like can't stop thinking about how hot she is, so much so that Deanna Troy is embarrassed to have accidentally picked up on it in his brain. Picard is, is veering real close to official supervillain status just by virtue of his feelings for Storm at this point. I know, right? I mean, I'm not saying you have to be a supervillain to fall in love with Storm, but I'm just saying if you do, you probably are, or at least a jerk like Forge. Oh, it seems foolish for anyone to not fall in love with Storm, though. Absolutely, but... But in major story events, it's usually the big villain. Mm, that makes sense. Well, this is how this is how you distinguish the noble, the, the noble, vaguely sympathetic villains from the straight up evil ones, is that the noble sympathetic ones prove they're noble and sympathetic by recognizing that Storm is freaking awesome. And I gotta say, Storm in this book, like I think a lot of the X-Men are distilled down to, say, one trait. But Storm feels like Storm, and she does feel that just regal and competent and kind and aware. Like, I like this Aurora. But Storm and Picard aren't the, the, the main pairing that we get from this series, because there is one X-Men Federation combo that is unquestionably doing it. So, I assume you're talking about Worf and Wolverine. I certainly am. Yep, yep. Or as Wolverine would say, You're darn tootin'. He says you're darn tootin' at one point in this book, and it's so good. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. He also mentions that Wolverine has faculties and instincts far superior to normal humans, more like the Terran predator he is named for. So, I guess they also don't know what Wolverines are in space. Is this in continuity with X-Men Origins Wolverine? I think it is. So, some of the other pairings that we get are Nightcrawler and Jordy. Jordy is very excited to have met someone who teleports through a means other than creating a duplicate of yourself and killing the original. And, mm. yeah. And Data and Banshee, who do, like, a recital in the Observation Lounge where they sing their Irish ballads together. I love that. And at one point, Deanna Troy thinks to herself, uh, it's a shame, you know, ballads aren't a priority on the Enterprise as often as some of the crew would have liked. 
I flag that only because there were musical sequences in the original series that Gene Roddenberry had to fight for. The network thought that that was ridiculous, that you shouldn't have that on a space show. And he was very adamant that, no, these people are, I was going to say humans, but, you know, humans or human-like aliens. Of course they do things like sing in their downtime. So... And then uh, the final pairing I mentioned is uh, Troy and Archangel, where they get together and Archangel gives Troy a hard time about her privilege, being a daughter of the fifth house and all. Archangel's so interesting in this. Like, normally you have Wolverine as the hothead of the team that causes trouble and is very focal. And in this, it's kind of Archangel, I guess, because Wolverine's too busy having, like, fight flirts with Worf in the Enterprise's Danger Room holodeck. Wolverine can't be the feelings guy because he won't take his mask off for the entire book. Yeah, for some reason, Michael Jan Friedman thought that Wolverine never, ever takes off his mask. That's not a thing. It's real weird. Maybe it's because he doesn't have a handy cowboy hat to put over his head instead. He normally has one of those, or at least an eye patch or something. So we finally end up with a chapter that is just about prune juice, because it is a running joke in Star Trek that Worf was introduced to prune juice and declared it a warrior's drink. So Wolverine, of course, wants to drink whatever a warrior like Worf would drink, and Guinan obliges by giving him a giant, giant tumbler of prune juice, which he downs rather than hurt his pride by admitting that's disgusting. Well, he doesn't want his new best friend to think badly of him. They're so adorable together. They're just straight up adorable. I love them. How tall is Worf canonically? I don't know. Probably about twice the height of Wolverine. Oh, could just carry him around under his arm like a suitcase. So, so uh, Michael Dorn is six foot three, and Worf is definitely and, and Michael Dorn is definitely wearing lifts to play Worf. So I'm gonna say we have to say he's at least six foot five. So that's that's a foot a foot and change taller than Wolverine. Yes. That's so cute. That's adorable. I know we were just talking about these Kirk Spock conventions. I'm just saying, Worf Logan conventions. What do you say, fandom as a whole? Does the ship have a name yet, and is it Warferine? <laughs> I think it is. Warferine. Yeah. It's either that or Wolverorf, which doesn't sound no, as good. Yeah, no, Warferine. Yes. So we're halfway through the book now, and we just finally get to the point where the X-Men actually get to Planet X. They get a distress call on the Enterprise from Zaldia because the Transformed have broken out of their imprisonment. And right after that happened, right after that happened and the distress call was sent, some unknown aliens took out communication. They took out the satellites on the planet that allow them to communicate. So, that's bad news. We also find out that those unknown aliens are down on the planet trying to capture the transformed. Lieutenant Sovar is a character made up for this book who is on the Enterprise and is from Zaldia, and we know, dramatic irony, that he is the brother of Arid Solvar, who is the first person who got, who we saw get transformed. And... 
Riker decides to be a nice guy and tell him what's going on, and he immediately runs to tell his friend what's going on, because there is no such thing as, like, military order in Starfleet. And so, of course, Kitty overhears this, and now all of the X-Men know what's going on, and they insist on joining. Which is good, because otherwise there would be no crossover. Also, she wrecks the holodeck, so there's nowhere for Wolverine and Worf to hook up anymore. Yeah. Also, not really mentioned, but in the holodeck, Lieutenant Robinson, the uh, the transporter tech, she's the person who's talking to Lieutenant Sovar. She's recreated the place from Banshee's song. So I don't know if she was planning to bring him there and seduce him later, but that's I have to assume that was the plan, right? But that's not really touched on. Just kind of a background detail there. I mean, we do know from uh, the canon that we have decided is canon from the comics that Banshee is a generous and creative lover, so she could do a lot worse. Hmm. Good to know. Good to Miles know. Miles is very invested in this idea. He and Moira get freaky, but it's like really emotionally fulfilling too. Satisfying consensual freakiness. I'm here for it. Exactly. So the Enterprise gets to the planet and they come up upon the Dracon. The cartoonishly warlike Dracod, who have a ship that basically hobbles along with barely any thrust because all of the energy is in its weapons. They're so great. And like the aliens themselves are these like long toothy reptilian evil lizard people. But while they're very bloodthirsty, their hierarchical titles imply a corporate structure. Well, that, that makes sense to me. So you've got the commander who's called the Implementor. Huh. It was capitalism all along. I knew it. Although the way that their corporate structure works is, is certainly very cutthroat. I think my favorite part where Friedman is just like, hey, readers, you guys, these dudes are evil. We just want you to know. Like, their leader, the High Implementor, uh, what's his what's his name? Uh, Isajo. At one point, he asks his second-in-command a question, and she doesn't know. And so he just commands her to kill herself, but grants her the mercy of uh, permission to sever her nerves before she kills herself. This doesn't necessarily seem like a uh, great way to keep morale up in your company, or to keep, like, employees in your company. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's bad. So in the battle, they are able to take out the Enterprise pretty quickly and take down the shields. So now we're going to start splitting the party. Dr. Crusher is working on figuring out what to do about the transformed. So she wants whoever goes down to the planet to get transformed DNA for her. Nightcrawler and Data go to the ship because Nightcrawler can bamf there, even though the transporters aren't working and they can take down the shields so that people can transport over, but there are redundancies in the shields, so only one team is able to get over. Worf, Banshee, and three security officers, and I just have to ask the two of you if you noticed the names of the three security officers. Uh, Lee, Kirby, and Ditko? I did. Were they, though? Because... The security officer who dies is Lieutenant Lee, but if you look at the book, his name keeps shifting back and forth between Lieutenant Lee and Lieutenant Wayne. I assume that it's first name, last name, and they just sort of couldn't figure out which was which. See, I assumed that at some point he was told that you couldn't kill off a character named after Stan Lee, 
but that there was an error because the book went to print so fast and they only changed some of the names. <laughs> Excelsior. Ironically, there is a starship Excelsior um, that shows up in the movies. Oh, shit. Sulu gets to run it. That's nice. So anyway, I mean, that's that's my weird conspiracy theory about the uh, the names of the officers who are with Worf and Banshee. I like that theory. So since the transporter isn't able to transport any more teams over, a bunch of people go down to the planet. The mutants are able to convince the transformed to trust them eventually. And Storm is forced to take out Rahatan because he starts firing at the first people he sees with his massive earth-moving power. And again, not great, because Storm is our hero, but on the other hand, every single person he's met so far has tried to kill him, so I'm not sure how much I blame him. Ooh, I want to go back a step, by the way, because we forgot to mention this. When they break out of their original internment camp, they leave a dude there because he's mentally ill, and then they never, ever, ever follow up on that. Yeah, that's true. I I was kind of thinking how even though they have, you know, it's the X-Men, right? It's the X-Men, so mutants are not to be feared and hated, right? The whole point is that we shouldn't hate and fear them. But at the same time, we're given this guy who, oh, he just can't control his powers, so he has to be locked up. Or we have Rahatan, who has to be locked up because... He was too violent. Or we have the fact that at the beginning, Wolverine is thrown into the brig because he started a bar fight. And that's considered right and proper, even though that's just the same carceral state. I I think it's interesting that the book has a kind of respectability view towards mutants and transformed. I think you're absolutely right, and that's uh, especially interesting when you when you find out kind of what the plan for the transformed is, what Doctor Crusher's been working on. You know? Oh yeah, definitely. Well, so getting before we get there, Picard and Archangel have to deal with a weapon that gets shot out of the Dracon ship. They decide, well, if we can't have the transformed, no one can. We're just going to bomb the planet. And there's no way for them to take it out other than Picard flying a shuttlecraft down and Archangel flying out into the atmosphere to diffuse it in midair. Which is kind of an amazing scene. It's actually really great. They hate each other so much and they come to respect each other through these mutual acts of bravery and of the captain doing a mission that maybe he should instead send somebody else and keep himself alive. But I guess that's just Star Trek. Well, I mean, everybody else has gone down to the planet. He's like the only person left. <laughs> it's pretty great, though. And I mean, this is where I really like the way the book handles Archangel. I think this is maybe the first time since Simon's an X-Factor where he's been the most interesting mutant in the story. But he kind of is. Like, he's got all this bitterness. The Federation is just so utopian. He's like, well, what is this bullshit? I don't trust it. This isn't what I've experienced. It's, I'm genuinely impressed with it. Even as much as Wolverine is just an old-timey, Larry Hama-style, like, minor guy who hooks up with Worf. Yeah, uh, Friedman doesn't talk a lot about X-Men continuity, but he does really dig into Warren's pain over Apocalypse taking his wings and replacing them with the metal wings. And 
that he kind of hasn't healed from the emotional wounds of that. And when they're doing when they're doing tests on the mutants in the sick bay when they first arrive, Crusher points out that the nanotechnical things in Warren's blood that created those wings are similar to the nanotechnical organisms that are left behind when you've been assimilated into the Borg. So even though this isn't this line isn't explicitly drawn, what Warren is going through is very similar to what Picard goes through as Locutus when he is assimilated by the Borg and then has to deal with the PTSD of that. So it makes a lot of sense that they would start out very suspicious of each other and then come to have this grudging respect since they have kind of the same trauma in their past. It's pretty great. There's a a lot of thought in a book that's an X-Men Star Trek crossover. So the last gasp of the Draken ship, it like wakes up like the villain at the end of a horror movie to have one last burst. But Troy is able to have Nightcrawler bamf her over so that she can take the bridge physically, which I love because she never gets to do cool stuff. And I'm just glad that the movies and some of the novels let her do cool stuff like that. And then we have a scene where Picard meets Professor Charles Xavier in the holodeck because you gotta have a moment where they're like, hey, you look like me. (laughs) Oh yeah, Crusher summons up a holographic simulacrum of Professor X to help her figure out what to do about the transformed. Yep, yep, to help her come up with a way to, like, fix their DNA. And weirdly, she says that the X-Mansion looks like the home that her Nana grew up in with the the plasma ghost that has sex with all the Crusher women. Just a weird reference for her to think of when she's in the X-Mansion, just... Wait, what? <laughs> the plasma ghost that has sex with all of the Crusher women from the episode Sabrosa? I, I haven't seen a lot of Next Generation. Um, I-, I guess we should. Oh, oh my goodness. Movie night. We have to watch the <laughs> Highland Sex Ghost episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Bucket list, yes. So, Crusher has managed to work with Charles Xavier and come up with a cure for the transformed which is presented as a happy ending. And it's okay, they're definitely not gonna make the transformed who don't want to take it, take it, and everything's gonna be fine now, right? All done here. Yup. It is a little strange the X-Men don't object more. I mean, I appreciate that the X-Men say, no, 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 we don't need to be cured, we're good, but you'd think they would be like, and don't do that. Right? And I mean, I get it, some of the people might not want the things that are happening to their bodies the same way some mutants, you know, on Earth in the 616 might not want what's happening to their bodies. But the fact that you would just give this cure to the government and be like, everything's fixed now, that's not, mm. So one of the things we learn about the Transformed is that they were, they were seeded by the bad guy and the bad guy um, aliens. Like, they were, they were created to be harvested as as a race of potential slave warriors. Does that change the ethics of this at all? Um, I don't have a solid answer to that. I'm, I'm curious as, as to what y'all think. See, I don't think it does. I, I think that whether the transformation was imposed on them from outside or just your natural genetics as it is with the, with the X-Men, I think at the end, everyone's bodily autonomy is up to them. Like, 
if there is such a cure and a mutant wants to take it, they should be allowed to. And if they don't want to, they should. it shouldn't be forced on them. And I feel like the X-Men tells us again and again, the comics, the stories, tell us again and again that the government will force it on people. And I just don't believe that that's not going to happen here on Planet X. So I think we need a Planet X2. Xandrians United, it could be called. Well, I, uh, this, this, this was a, unfortunately, I feel like this was probably a once in a lifetime copyright convergence. (laughs) (laughs) But things do get wrapped up. There's the cure. As you say, the cure is offered to the X-Men. They don't want it. Good for them. Picard and Storm bang it out. Weirdly, like the last coupling I would ever pick, I would ever guess at. And then we have an epilogue where we find out that this was all masterminded by Q all along. That sounds right. He and Owatu the Watcher watch the fallout. Oh, and the reason that the time hook didn't work was because Nightcrawler's all weird with his bamfing, and they fix that. They, they account for that, and then they're fine. Hooray! We are about out of time. Sorry, listeners who sent in questions. Um, I will I will try to stick those up on on the blog with the visual companion along with with our our answers to them because you had some pretty good ones, but we don't have time for them in the episode right now. So this is this is the point where we tell you all that we are an entirely listener supported podcast. You are the ones keeping us on the air, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the mic goes to the. High Implementer of the Dracon. Suffering to the foes of the glorious Dracon Empire. Despite our ship having impregnable shields and like 10 million guns, this Federation and these X-Men are fighting back more effectively than non-evil lizard people should. Maybe it's because they don't keep murdering their own employees, but perhaps it's because fuck them. Thus, we shall employ guile and deception. Stephen Hollodak, my second in command, you shall adopt a human disguise and befriend Wolverine and Worf in the holodeck, at which point you shall assassinate them. Although, your surname, while a very common lizard person name, is far too similar to the name of the environ which you would infiltrate. You have failed me, fool! Go punch yourself in the face a bunch, and then incinerate yourself in the nearest warp core. Tom O'Gorman, my new second-in-command. Now this spycraft falls unto you. Go join Data and Banshee in the lounge, and sing songs of your homeland to gain their trust. And then, bam, right in the squishy mammalian and simulated mammalian neck. Except... You would be found out immediately, as all of your tales of growing up are about the egg pits and acid seas and spike farms of Dracon. You, too, have failed me. Go pull off your fingers and toes and then swap them so your toes are on your hands and your fingers are on your feet, and then explode! Our casualties are mounting, and our enemies have not even broken through our shields. What could we possibly be doing wrong? So that wraps things up for today. Tina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. This was great. Yes, thank you. And once again, where can listeners uh, find you and your other podcasts? They can find all of our podcasts at welcometotelevision.net. Yes, check it out. Uh, I think actually, yeah, way back in the day, I I was even on one of those talking about uh, Once Upon a Time. That's true. You were on Welcome to Storybrooke. Jay was as well. 
I was. I got to talk about unicorn murder. Good old unicorn murder. So, uh, yes, listeners, definitely check it out. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, author and longtime friend of the podcast, Douglas Wolk, will be joining us to discuss... Onslaught. All Marvel comics ever. What?